If you have your Bible or your device, if you could turn it on or open it up to Matthew chapter 16, if it doesn't already do that by itself, um, we are finishing, we've gone as far as we can go in this, in this verse without going backward. And we're not going to go backward. So today is the last Sunday that we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. And it seems sort of weird to some to think that we could spend three weeks on one verse But man, this is a powerful verse. And if we slow down and walk through exactly what this means, which I hope is what we have done the last two weeks and today, that we're able to grasp just what type of commitment this is and just what type of offer this is from our Savior to come and follow after Him. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if you don't already know it by memory, it reads this way. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Two weeks ago that we saw the church uh, was a community of people who were ready to die, who were ready to deny themselves when we looked at what, what death looked like from a God perspective and not a human perspective. The last week we, we talked about what it, took, what it meant to take up a cross. And today we're going to look at what it means to follow me, those words coming from Jesus. Now, it may seem obvious, blatantly obvious to us what that means, and that we don't need to spend uh, any amount of time, let alone the next 25 minutes, talking about it. But I wonder what our Heavenly Father, I wonder how He acts when He looks down from heaven upon His people, a people who have professed, who have claimed to follow after Him. And as He watches us, what his reaction is to just how intently, just how serious we are about our following after him. I pray that every day that he gives us breath, we look more and more like Jesus, that whole sanctification process. And I pray that today and these last three weeks have helped us have a deeper understanding of what it means to deny ourselves, to take up a cross, and today follow me. You see, last week we talked about what if, how these first century brothers and sisters, and even before Jesus had established the church, or even before he had hinted about how he was going to die, when he mentioned the word, take up a cross, they knew exactly what he meant, because it was this symbol, this, this scene of public execution. Horrendous, violent public execution. And today, though it's not as violent that's the same principle applies to these words, follow me. Because when they would have heard these words from Jesus, they would have understood it uh, in a certain uh, connotation. And I hope that we are able to, to do that as well. You see, these words, follow me, those are, that exact phrase, follow me, appears 27 times throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, appears 27 times. Six times in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it covers different things like uh, marriage and courtship. I'm talking about uh, how, how the, um, if, you, if you want to marry me, you'll follow me. Right? So, uh, and then sometimes it's used in the book of Psalms in beautiful poetry. It's used uh, in the, the book of Judges when Gideon is going to war, and he's talking about a follow me into battle. It's used in, in, in uh, the, the sense of a pro- the prophet Elijah Elisha being able to allow the men and women around him to have this spiritual eyesight, not to just see the, the two opposing forces in an, arm, in an armies uh, getting ready to battle each other, but by allowing them to see the heavenly forces that were there fighting alongside them. 
And Elisha said, follow me, it's this way. In the New Testament, when you come to the New Testament, if you were doing the math, that means there's 21 times that it's used in the New Testament. All but one are in the Gospels. And that's when Peter was in jail and an an angel of the Lord appeared to, to, to Peter and say, hey, follow me to safety. The other 20 times are all in the Gospels. The other 20 times were all spoken by Jesus. There's this truth about Bible study that when something is repeated multiple times, you might want to slow down, lean in, and see what it means. And the fact that Jesus himself said this 20 times, we ought to pay attention to it. Now, some of those times he was talking directly to a person or people. For instance, that's how he called his disciples. He saw James and John. He said, follow me. He saw Matthew. He said, follow me. He saw Simon Peter. Follow me. Other times he's talking to a bigger audience, more disciples. and says, this is what it means to follow me. And here, this command in Matthew 16, 24 means to follow me. So what does it mean when Jesus said, follow me? And another important part of Bible study is it cannot mean something to us that it did not mean in its original context. The application may be different because times are different, but the truth is the same. So it cannot mean in 2022 what it did not mean in 33 AD. So let's look and see what this phrase, follow me, would have meant. You see, education, especially religious education in the first century started at an early age. Instead of sending off to kindergarten, young boys at about age five were sent off uh, to synagogue school. And there they would have have learned uh, their version of the Old Testament. Now, it wasn't all the books that we have compiled in a nice bound uh, bound volume and and a Bible that we could tote around. But they had the books of law, and they had the writings, and they had the prophets, and these young, young boys would start memorizing those sections of Scripture. Memorize, not paraphrase, not have a good idea about what it might say, memorize. I won't ask you to raise your hand about how many of us would flunk out of synagogue school. Now, some of those guys, by the time that they got to their bar mitzvah, by the age of 12 or 13, right, some of them would have shown more promise. And those that have had done a good job of memorizing and committing to memory, they would have been encouraged to continue their education. To, to go and now instead of just the memorization or uh, as I refer to my classes in school, I, uh, to move from the regurgitation stage where you're just shooting back facts at me to the interpretation and the application phase. So if you didn't make the grade, you were sent home to pick up the family trade. If you did make the grade, you stayed on and you started learning the application and the interpretation uh, and the wisdom part of that. And then after a period, uh, an extended period of time, those, those now young men who were still showing promise were encouraged to continue to, to follow a rabbi for, for three years to learn how to be like that rabbi. Now, applying to rabbi school was a whole lot like applying to colleges today. You had to make sure you were, had a good match. Because there were different rabbis and they all approached things differently. Some may take a, a, a more a literal approach to the Scripture. Some may take, hey, let's just, I just want to focus on the spirit of the Scripture. Some rabbis would fo- hone in on certain aspects of the Scripture, like making sure we're keeping all the ritual purity laws. 
So you'd want to make sure that what you wanted to hone in on is what that rabbi emphasized, because it would be a long three years and a disaster if you were to hitch yourself to a rabbi that you didn't agree with. So you would narrow it down and you would go find your rabbi uh, or the type of rabbi that you wanted to follow and you would basically apply to his school. And then he would make the decision only after grilling you. And he would ask you question and question and question, not looking for you just to repeat scripture because he knew that if you made it this far that you were a good student. What he was looking for was how you handled the text, how you interpreted things, to make sure that you were of the same mindset that he was, uh, he was because he didn't want to waste his time on you if you were going to butt heads for three years. So after this rigorous, right, years of, of preparation and now this rigorous um, being grilled about your understanding and interpretation of the Scriptures, if you made it to that rabbi's list, you would hear those words, follow me. And at that time, you knew that you had passed the test, that you were good enough, that you had the ability, or this rabbi saw in you the ability, the potential to be like him. Because that's what a rabbi was concerned about was to make mini-me's of those people who came to his school of being a rabbi. So you, throughout the scriptures, you can see this phrase, follow me. It's a, it's a Jewish idiom that means, come and be in my presence, be with me, but also submit to my authoritative teaching. Now here in the West, we like part of that. We like the come be with me. Sometimes we're not so sure about the sit under my authoritative teaching. But we can't divorce the two. You can't do that contextually. You can't do that theologically. By accepting the invitation, these young men were saying, I surrender to your leadership. I, I place myself under your authority. No coercion was needed. No, no, no scholarships were provided. I, it was I surrender to your teaching. Now, I think it's important for us to understand this backdrop of the rabbinic selection process, the process that these, these young families and young men had to go through, because it was not the custom in the first century for a rabbi to go seeking out who he wanted. He wasn't keeping an eye on uh, in, uh, the, the, the local newspaper. He wasn't seeing who the best students were. He wasn't looking at the, the principal's list and to seeing who got the A's. He wasn't going out and searching. He was sought after. It would have been beneath him to open up, open, uh, open enrollment to everybody. Yeah, you had to come to him. And what Jesus did is he flipped that coin. Jesus was the one who took the initiative and said to Simon Peter, follow me. Who said to Matthew or Levi, follow me. Can you imagine the jaw drop? I mean, it almost had to be audible when Jesus went up to Simon Peter and said, follow me. A fisherman. So somewhere along the line, he had bowed out of the education process and was now becoming a fisherman, probably like his dad and his grandpa and his great-grandpa. Can you imagine Levi or Matthew? Can you imagine his reaction when Jesus said, follow me? He was a tax collector. He was hated by everybody. 
The Romans hated him because he was Jewish. The Jewish people hated him because he was working for Rome. Everybody hated him. In fact, not only were tax collectors despised, but people thought that they could not even be forgiven. Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. The rabbi sought out his disciples. And that, that process continues today. Can you imagine what Peter thought, what Matthew thought? This rabbi, this teacher thinks that I'm good enough? He sees something in me that makes me worthy to follow after him? And we fail to realize sometimes, we lose sight that Jesus has a much higher view of us as his disciples in his power and what we can become than we ever have on our own. Why? It's because Jesus always starts with the eternal end in full view. He knew what was coming and he knew the type of men, the type of women that, would be, that he would need in order to make this mission successful. Not men who were superstars by the world's standards, but men who needed the power of the Holy Spirit in order to even come to Him. And we see that applying today. Our sole role is to accept the invitation to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow Him. See, we've, we've become experts in a lot of things. I'm sure Peter was an expert in fishing. I'm sure that Matthew was an expert uh, in tax collecting and probably swindling people a little bit. We've become experts in a lot of things as well, and we've become an expert in not completely saying yes to all that Jesus asks of us. I want you to think about a few things with me because I do mean experts. I think we would all agree that when it comes to sin, we have become experts at ranking sin. And the basic rule of ranking sin is that your sin is worse than mine. We, we look at people and we, we jump into the comparison game. Right? And we have these, this list of heinous sins and then we have the list of lesser sins. And that definition is fluid and flexible. Right? But again, you're worse than I am. But we do the same thing when it comes about our commitment to Jesus. We, 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 we justify ourselves and our actions, but we condemn other people and their supposed or visual inaction. We, we have become experts at doing this. We haven't seen them forever, right? They're just using the pandemic as an excuse to stay away. When is the, you should ask this person to do this. I haven't seen them for a while, or we, and we rationalize. I want you to listen to a statement, and I'll change it just so nobody gets too mad yet. I want to say that Christianity's most common, or if you want to, if it's a little softer to you, we could say Christ, one of Christianity's most common and subtle and powerful sin is rationalization. Rationalization, however you want to say the next part, is one of Christianity's most common and subtle and powerful sin. Let's make sure we're on the same page here. Rationalization. Right? We're going to take the best of both worlds. We're going to take Merriam-Webster, and we're going to take Wikipedia, and we're going to marriage them together. Right? Taking that, uh, rationalization is defined as uh, a describing and interpreting and explaining or justifying 
something with logical, plausible reasons to make it seem proper and more attractive, even if, even if these are not true or appropriate. Right? Too long of a definition? Let's narrow it down. All right? You have Merriam-Webster. You have Wikipedia. Let's go clear over here to simple, to Tony Foreman. Right? Essentially, rationalization is making, is making excuses, and we are experts at making excuses. Ever since Adam tried to blame Eve, ever since Moses tried to downplay his inability or his ability to lead when God was trying to call him, when God was calling him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, ever since Aaron tried to deflect the blame for the golden calf on the Israelites rather than take the blame himself for being a failed leader, ever since Gideon like self-deprecated himself because he didn't think he was worthy to, 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 to lead and to, to serve God in that way, ever since Jeremiah the prophet uh, tried to say that he was too young, people have rationalized their rebellion to God. Rationalization is a type of visible rebellion. We don't even know it ourselves a lot of the time, let alone everybody else. Because nobody's going to, to blame you. Nobody's going to judge you over this. Nobody's going to fault you if you decide not to go on a, a mission trip because you obviously have other things that you have to take care of. Nobody's going to fault you uh, if you don't pay for somebody's meal at a restaurant. Nobody's going to stop, uh, fault you for not stopping to help somebody who's uh, stuck on the side of the road because everybody else is flying by too. Nobody's going to, to, to blame you for these things because we all do it. These are things that we ordinarily do. If God is urging you to do something, it's often just between you and God. And this is where rationalization becomes dangerous because we turn off the opportunity before we, before we give it a chance. And it seems realistic. It seems right. I mean, how many of us can truly and honestly blame Jonah for heading the other direction from Nineveh? Now, think about it for a second, right? Apply that to your life and some things that God's asked you to do and how you responded. But you had Jonah, hey, God says, hey, Jonah, go to, I need you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh hated Jonah's people. They were ruthless towards Jonah's people. And God now wants me to go there? Most, if not all of us, would have followed Jonah's path and trying to run away from that. But that's not what God wanted. God routinely calls us to be countercultural and radically different than the world around us. But we always, uh, I'll soften a little bit, we often talk ourselves out of it. We all do this. Every person, every Christian does this. Bear with me just for a second, right? Have you ever attempted any of these? I'm not smart enough to teach a Bible class or work in Upstreet. I'm not rich enough to tithe every week. I served in children's ministry for decades. It's somebody else's turn now. If I talk to a coworker about Jesus, they'll probably just think I'm a crazy lunatic. I don't have enough vacation time saved up to go on a mission trip. I don't want to endanger my family by becoming a missionary in a third world country. My friends will ridicule me if I choose this over a weekend away with them. God calls us to be good stewards of our money, so I'm not going to give away to charity. 
If God wanted me to do that, he would have provided me with the finances to make it happen. My kids will hate me if I say no to this dress, this concert, this overnight trip. God didn't give me an obvious sign, so it probably means I'm not supposed to do it. I don't know enough about the Bible to share the gospel with someone else. This person acted rudely or said something to me, so I'm done with them. God calls us to take care of our family, so for now I'm going to make sure they're safe, and then I'll sacrifice for others. That person is way more gifted and talented for me, uh, so I'll just let them go in my place. My day is already long enough. I can't get up at 6 a.m. or to go to a Bible study or haul my family out in the evening to go to a care group. After all, they got school the next morning. That's not exactly what I believe. Therefore, I'm going to completely withdraw my support. And my favorite, and I know it will get a chuckle, but if God's sovereign, He's predestinate, and it's going to happen anyway, whether I'm on board or not. Now, if you've used some of those, right, if, as you listen to that, you've probably used some of them, right? If it ticked you off a little bit to hear those read, it's probably because you needed somebody to tick you off this morning. Now, yes, okay, please hear me, right? Yes, there are times where we need to guard ourselves and our family from burnout, and we must always seek wisdom and affirmation from others and from God in affirming where He's leading us in our lives. But for the most part, Christians have the opposite problem. Right? We're too timid to boldly follow Christ's example. It's not as if the world is looking at Christianity right now and being astounded about how, we, how generous we are, how caring we are, how loving we are, how inspiring we are. Unfortunately, across the world right now, we often have the opposite reputation of being hateful and greedy, prideful and content. This doesn't mean that we need to shame ourselves into submission. It, needs, it means we need to look at the cross and all that was done for us and have no other, no other possible reaction than to be in such awe and thankfulness that we're willing to surrender everything to Him, to deny ourselves because of that, to, to pick up our cross because of that, and to follow Him because of that. We need to faithfully and joyfully be reassured about our redemption and our identity in Jesus Christ. To avoid the pitfalls of rationalization is really quite simple. Not always easy, but really quite simple. Follow Jesus' example. Did those men who the rabbi said, follow me, did they know all they needed to know? No. There was going to be three years of tutelage, of learning. There was more to learn. When Jesus said to Peter, follow me. When Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. To Philip and Nathaniel, follow me. Do you think that they knew all they needed to know? Absolutely not. And that's why they had to spend three years with the Son of Man and then have the Spirit come inside them so that they could be all that they needed to be for Jesus and for His kingdom. Follow Jesus' example. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let his model of humble service, of selfless sacrifice, of gracious love motivate us. Let, let, let our lives as Christ's followers bring joy and peace and reconciliation and empowerment and freedom wherever we go. And here's the thing, church. That's what you were chosen for. That's the life that you were called into. Our rabbi... Jesus Christ chose you, chose us when he left heaven to come to earth to live a life that we could not live, a perfect one. 
He chose you when he carried his cross through the jeering crowds while people swearing and spitting and beating on him to the place where he carried the cross to the place of his murder. That cross was meant for you. He chose you when he willingly took your sins upon his shoulders and his body and died a merciless death for you on Calvary's cross. That death should have been yours, should have been mine, not his. He chose you in victory for you when he walked triumphantly out of that grave on the third day. All throughout history, God has chose the supreme, the expert rationalizers to be men and women that he molded for his service. He chose Jonah and Moses and Aaron and Jeremiah and all their failures. And Jesus chose James and John, Peter and Andrew and Matthew, and all, and all of them had multiple excuses. He chose Paul, someone that none of us would have chose because of his past, but he saw what those men could be in him and with his spirit in them. He chose you as well. He calls you to follow him. He chose you because he loves you and he wants to redeem you and he wants to use you in his ministry of reconciliation. He chose us to be the mouthpiece, to be the hands and the feet of the kingdom to spread his gospel to people who desperately need them. So instead of seeing somebody that we disagree with as an enemy, as somebody to be hated, see them as somebody who Satan right now has a hold on and they desperately need Jesus Christ in their life. He chose you. question for you this morning is simply, will you choose him?